Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, good morning, and it is a Monday, and I am Jenna Ellis. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning, and I wanted to start this morning with a top story that has been percolating, I think, for a while that we as Christians really need to pay attention to and stop and analyze for the deeper uh, theological and uh, historical underpinnings, really. So the Pew Research Center had a study out that said that U.S. adults identifying as Christian has gone significantly down over the last couple of decades. So this uh, graphic from Fox News shows that in the 1990s, about 90% of U.S. adults were identifying as Christian. In 2007, that number dropped to 78%. And last year in 2022, that number had dropped even further to 64%. There was a study out of the United Kingdom and out of Europe that was saying also in the United Kingdom, the uh, the number of adults even across Europe and specifically in the United Kingdom were also dropping. So the question that we have to ask is why? Why is this? Is this just that more people are hesitant to identify themselves on a survey as Christian? Is it because uh, some of these people in, say, the 1990s, when it was 90%, uh, were more cultural Christians? And so identified themselves as Christian because that was a given part of our society, that if you are American, you understand our U.S. history and the uh, the tenor of what our culture perceives, then you would identify yourself as a Christian more culturally because what else would you be, right? Unless you specifically uh, chose a different or separate faith. So I want to ask this question, but I want to ask it more in context of how we understand not only the world around us, but how we also we understand and interpret scripture. So as it relates to uh, Great Britain, uh, Father Calvin Robinson, who actually identifies himself as an evangelical Catholic, which I find a little bit contradictory, and uh, sometime we'll have him on the show, and I'd love to ask him more about that. But he is on uh, GBN, which is one of the news channels that's over in the United Kingdom, and he was contemplating this very question, and this is how he set it up in the context of the history and culture and asking this very important question of why are adults not identifying as Christians and and leaving uh, Christianity and that Christianity is declining across uh, Western culture. So listen to this. Let's go to cut six. To see the recent census data showing that only demographics to change or to decline are the English and Christians. And from what I've seen, liberal commentators have been claiming it's a fine thing to see high levels of immigration because it's immigrants propping up the church. Well, I don't think that's true because we've had record highs of immigration in recent years, reaching 1.1 million immigrants arriving in the UK last year. But the number of Christians is still plummeting, putting us in a minority for the first time in modern history. The UK has always been a Christian country. There are those who would argue Joseph of Arimathea arrived in England as the first missionary 
the very man who buried Jesus. It's also been claimed that St. Paul arrived in England during his journeys west. King Lucius, a second century king of the Britons, is credited with requesting Christian teachers be sent to this land from the Bishop of Rome. His letters to the Pope speak of the Christian conversion of Britain. We know Christians crossed the UK from Gaul, now France, and planted churches during the second century. And of course, St. Alban arrived in Hertfordshire in the third and fourth century and is recorded as one of the first Britain Christian martyrs. All of this is before Augustine of Canterbury famously arrived in the year of our Lord 597 as a monk sent by Gregory the Great to evangelise King Athelbert. The Church of England has many roots, Celtic, European, potentially Judean and Roman. There are many who would denigrate our history, claiming that we are a pagan nation. But the truth is, the British have always been Christian. These lands are Christian. Our society and our laws were built upon Christian faith. It is astonishing then to see Christianity fall into a minority religion in the UK with only 46.2% of people identifying themselves as Christians in the 2021 census. A 13% point drop in a decade. What has been going wrong? So that's Father uh, Calvin Robinson, who is commenting on GBN, and his question at the end, what is going wrong, is exactly the question that we need to ask here in the United States. What is going wrong when we have a drop in a less than a decade of 12% of people who are now no longer identifying as Christians in the United States. What is going wrong? Because I love how he unabashedly and unashamedly describes those lands in England as Christian and the history as Christian and describes all of the influences throughout world history that led him to that conclusion. We can say and we should say the same about our land in the United States. We are a Christian nation. You have probably heard that Christian nationalism is uh, one of the those phrases that uh, now is a uh, it is an extremist phrase, and it's something that uh, people say in a pejorative way uh, against those who would promote our founding, would promote. Christianity and the truth of objective morality. But if we look even at American history, which of course our founders had their roots and came out of England, we can then borrow the history that uh, Father Robinson just beautifully explained and then add on to that our own American history. We know that uh, the initial settlers and the pilgrims that came to this country were seeking primarily religious freedom. And when the the Church of England, of course, split with the Catholic Church, and we know that history from uh, Henry VIII, and then that was established as the uh, as as the religion that was forced onto the people, and you had to be part of the Church of England. That allowed our founders to understand in context why religious liberty was so incredibly important to be able to seek the truth about God for ourselves and not be compelled by a government to be part of any particular denomination or particular religion. But we have so warped and and completely misconstrued and perverted, frankly, our history 
or we are so ignorant of our history in this country. We don't teach it anymore in schools. Um, it's now somehow racist because all of our founding fathers were older white men. And so somehow their <clears throat> ideas, according to the left, don't matter anymore. And our history is perverted and taught in a way that uh, that is actually disabusive of what our history truly professes. But if we look at our First Amendment, and we, if we look at this in context, what our founders wanted with religious freedom was not the ability to reject truth and self-evident truth of morality and objective morality and how law functions in society, but truly the ability to seek first the kingdom of God and not be told by a government that we have to go to a particular church and be part of a particular denomination, or that we are restrained from speaking truth into culture. And so how that has shaped our American experience, and what I think is the answer to this question more broadly, is that because we have so excised God from society, and we have warped and reinvented the First Amendment text to say something that it doesn't, to excise God from society, then is it any wonder that we have a generation and several generations of people in our society who don't know our roots and our history? They don't know why we are a Christian nation. They don't know that our founders referred to the Bible more than any other text when they were writing the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution and our founding documents, when they talked about self-evident truth. So why is it that we have the rise of a secular society and an atheistic society, one that is intentionally, as Romans talks about, um, the Apostle Paul in Romans, we are intentionally suppressing God in unrighteousness. Well, my friend Jim DeMent, who uh, of course was a U.S. Senator and uh, was the president of the Heritage Foundation at one point, um, he gave a good answer to this question. And so play uh, cut eight. America is declining because the Christian church is declining, and the Christian church is de declining because it's become unmoored from truth. You don't hear many Christian pastors standing up and defending the truth of the Bible yeah. in the middle of all this woke culture. People are afraid of absolute truth, of biblical morality. And that was Jim DeMent, and he was talking about, uh, of course, the church not standing up for truth. And if we are completely abdicating our role and responsibility as Christians in society, then we no longer are standing for absolute truth, and everything becomes a matter of argument. And when it just becomes a matter of the collective judgment of those in power in government suggesting we agree that certain things are moral or immoral and we will have our own collective judgment make that determination. We are no longer professing objective truth. Then everything is a matter of debate and discussion and ultimately a matter of power because then it matters who the majority is in Congress, who sits in the White House, and especially importantly, the composition of the Supreme Court. Because if you have activists that are not bound by the U.S. Constitution in context and are not bound by natural law, are not bound by rules that are objectively moral and do not 
say we understand that we are limited to simply interpreting the U.S. Constitution in context and the law, and we assent to the fundamental truth that there is objective morality, then everything is debatable. And that's where we find ourselves in 2023, is a culture that is postmodern, is post-truth, and all of these worldviews that we can talk about, they're more secular Marxist, and they're headed that direction. We are headed this direction as a country, and uh, the UK is headed there as a country because we have lost our moorings in the authority of the word of God. We have lost our willingness often as Christians, particularly pastors in the pulpit, to stand up firmly for the truth. And when you lose the grounding in objective truth and the authority of the word of God, then when everything becomes debatable, it's a matter not just of interpreting law and applying truth to a given circumstance or truth to the facts. It's a matter of reinventing the law and truth to fit your own preferred narrative. And so as we're seeing so many of these debates uh, like abortion and marriage and uh, human sexuality and so many of these, what we've called and we've termed the social issues, as we're looking at those issues, that has become debatable in our American society because fewer and fewer people self-identify as Christian because they do not want to assent to or say that we are under the authority of the word of God. The left will say it is, a, it is an extreme view that we are a Christian nation. Why? Because they want to separate the secular from the sacred, as my friend Nancy Piercy uh, beautifully describes in her book, Total Truth. There is a separation intellectually between what we know is objective truth versus what we want to do in living in our sin. And that's, that is exactly why God has made the three institutions of government and the three spheres of government. Civil society requires that we are bound by a code of moral law. And if that is arbitrary, if that is something that we can just reinvent in collective judgment, then of course, of course people will stop identifying as Christian because then we have created our God substitute. We have said that government and its authority is higher than God and his authority. So we're going to talk more about this and some other headlines when we come right back right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. 
People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. In this season of giving, you can be the answer to their prayer today. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International, and since Labor Day, we've been working toward a goal of putting God's Word into the hands and hearts of 16,000 Bibleist believers around the world. Here's a few that are praying for a Bible. Ahmed is a former Muslim beaten by extremists when he came to faith in Christ. He's praying for a Bible. Miriam is a widowed mother of three in Mozambique, Africa. Very sadly, her husband was killed by the Boko Haram regime, but she's praying for a Bible. Carla was a follower of pagan practices in Venezuela. He's praying for a Bible now as a Christ follower. And then Washi and her husband are livestock farmers in China. They want to raise their children to know and love Jesus. They're praying for a Bible. Listen, to date, you've put 10,000 Bibles into the hands of Bibleist believers. We'd love to see another 6,000 by the end of the year. So please, at $5 a Bible, would you make your most generous gift by calling 800-YES-WORD? 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD or give at sendbiblesnow.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Teachers in Arkansas will no longer be allowed to teach critical race theory. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed an executive order that bans educators from teaching kids that black people are the oppressed and white people are the oppressors. It's government-sanctioned indoctrination. Governor Sanders says schools need to get back to teaching reading, math, and science instead of white privilege and systemic racism. And she promised voters she would never allow taxpayer-funded schools to brainwash our kids with a far-left political agenda. Now, Huckabee said that our kids and children will learn that the identity that truly matters is the one we all share, our identity as children of God and citizens of the United States. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is how Republicans should govern, stand on a firm foundation girded by the U.S. Constitution and the Holy Bible. Be sure to get a copy of my book, Culture Jihad, at ToddSterns.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. How long will we be one nation under God? An alarming study by Pew Research found that Christianity could possibly become a minority religion in the United States as early as 2045. Look at these numbers. In the 1990s, 90% of adults identified as Christians. Then in 2007, it dropped to 78%. And most recently... Only 64% say they are Christian. Our nation's faith is diminishing at an alarming rate. The question is why? That was Pete Hegseth on Fox News talking about this Pew Research study. I'm Jenna Ellis. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the Morning, and we're talking about that salient question. Why? Why are more people at an alarming rate, at a very, very high declining rate, 
not identifying anymore as Christian. And how has that identification of how people adhere to the Word of God and view themselves as Christians, and of course what that means, because people can be cultural Christians, they can be true Bible-believing Christians, um, they can, in, in some wild cases, be contradictory Christians, saying that they are pro-choice Christians, or they are um, essentially what I like to call meat-eating vegans, right? It's something that is a contradictory and self-defeating label and identity because you can't be too inconsistent or mutually exclusive uh, things at the same time. You can't be a man-woman. You can't be um, a human dog. You can't be too inconsistent things at the same time. And many people in the United States uh, who say that they are Christians, if you ask them, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be a Christian? They would describe this as something other than how the Bible in its authority defines faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and how it would define and how God himself defines our relationship to him and what it means to go from being in Adam in sin into Jesus in salvation. That is the measurable objective difference of what it means to be a Christian, but this term has become very malleable. And I would venture a guess that even in this Pew Research study, among this 64% that identify as Christians, it's probably less than that who are actually genuinely, objectively Christians who faithfully adhere and understand the truth and the true meaning of that term. And of course, we are not any more free to redefine what it means to be a Christian separate and apart from the authority of the Word of God, then what it means uh, to be human, what it means to uh, have a marriage. I mean, all of these terms that are labels that have inherent meaning that describe reality using linguistics and language, definitions matter as long as they those definitions are true and they accurately describe reality. So if a term or a meaning or a definition is false because it doesn't accurately describe uh, the concept or the label or the object, then it's meaningless. And we can't use the term uh, for any real purpose anymore because we have now so perverted it, we have twisted it, we have contorted it for our own subjective purposes. So I think it's actually less than that. But we have to look at this question of why. Why are fewer people in American society and across Great Britain and Europe, fewer people are identifying as Christians and wanting to even have a semblance of Christianity and a semblance of God's authority in society? Well, the the answer to that question is because we no longer want our law to be objective and to truly function how it is supposed to in society. We don't want the U.S. Constitution to say what it says and mean what it means. As uh, the late, great Justice Scalia once said, The Constitution says what it says and it means what it means. Uh, But we have attempted to reinterpret first the Bible and so then 
of course, the U.S. Constitution and our law. So a lot of us are familiar as Christians with uh, the term exegesis and uh, exegeting scripture, rightly dividing truth. And exegesis or biblical exegesis is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text. And we typically only use that term exegesis uh, traditionally applied to the interpretation of a biblical text. But exegesis can involve critical interpretations of any written text, not just religious texts or not just the authority and the truth of scripture. So biblical exegesis is rightly dividing truth from error and rightly understanding what does the Bible say. And I was, in preparing for this show, I came across this uh, segment from Newsy, which is another kind of alternative network, talking about a new version of the Bible uh, recently, uh, the, I believe it was the um, NTSB, and the Bible translation that includes over 20,000 modern revisions. And James Packard, who's the host, and he self-identifies himself as bisexual, uh, which is interesting to me also as a question of why do people on the left, their most important identity comes from how they identify themselves sexually rather than how they identify themselves in terms of their relationship with God. But uh, this host who is talking about this new Bible translation that includes over 20,000 new revisions in a quote-unquote modernized text, had this question for his guest, but also this observation. Listen really closely. This is Cut 9. For someone like me, I'm, I'm a bi man. As, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I immediately go to a place like Leviticus uh, 18.22. You know, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That in this new version, Frank, stays exactly the same. And in that translation, it, you know, bringing it over from Greek or Hebrew, it could be, and you can tell me which one it was, it could be that man was man or husband. It could be that that was in the context of incest. It could be that they were talking about sleeping with a married man and not just any man sleeping with a man. So those changes are the same. And I imagine uh, those uh, passages, I should say, are the same. And I imagine it's a lot more complicated for um, the, the, the changes that would be necessary to f make the LGBTQ community feel totally included would be a lot more complicated to make in the church. So that was the host of Newsy, and that question and that presumption was just so elucidated exactly why we have this problem in society, because the changes that would be necessary to make in order for the LGBT community to feel included. So if we have the outcome-oriented goal of making sin feel comfortable in society, feel included in the church, we are willing to revise the authority and the objective truth of what the word of God plainly says in order to fit and accommodate sin. And that word accommodation is exactly what you are seeing being used in other aspects of interpre interpreting text. So did God really say? That's the question when we look at biblical interpretation and exegesis. Did God really say? Then, if that is a, uh, is, if that's a subject, subjective response, and if that 
depends on how we feel. If we say, well, God didn't really say that because it makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel not included. It's, it's not an accommodation. Then once we have eroded that foundation, we will go a step further and say, does the constitution really say? Does it really say? And then we will start doing what's called proof texting. In terms of written documents, we've talked about exegesis, but in terms of proof texting, a proof text is a passage of scripture and it's most often used in the biblical context, but again, can apply to interpretations of all kinds of texts. Uh, But proof texting is a passage of scripture presented as proof for a theological doctrine or a belief or a principle. So when you say that um, someone is proof texting, what they're doing is taking one word or phrase or sentence entirely out of context, and they're building a doctrine around it and saying this one word, phrase, uh, sentence or clause, if you will, then says a, a completely different thing than what it actually means in context. So you are removing it from the surrounding text and you are building a whole other doctrine and an entirely different interpretation than what it actually says and what the author meant for it to say. And those of us who have uh, have been in a variety of churches have seen pastors do that all the time, unfortunately. And that is also what the Supreme Court does all the time with the text and interpretation of the law and particularly the constitution when you look at the first amendment and the free exercise of religion and the establishment clause right hardly anyone even in oral arguments in this uh, in front of the supreme court will reference what the document actually says and the history of why the founders put in our Bill of Rights and why the Constitution separates and limits powers and then the Bill of Rights was a redundancy protection to say, well, even though we didn't give the government any power to infringe or foreclose on these rights, these rights are so particularly abused in history, we wanted to make sure that Congress and the legislative branch understood you can't touch these. Well, nobody talks about that anymore. All they do is pull out a word or phrase and say the establishment clause. And then they define that however they want. And they then build all kinds of doctrines around it. We are now living in a day and age that we are under a totally separate constitution than the one that our founders gave us. Why? Because we have reinvented and proof texted the constitution into such small little pieces, we've chopped it up to say this one word or phrase means something completely different. Or we've gone even further than that and ridiculously and and just totally illogically beyond that, when we had the 1965 case Griswold, Griswold versus Connecticut that established what's called the Penumbra Doctrine, which the Supreme Court says, okay, I can't see anywhere in the text that we can possibly justify this outcome that we want. So we are going to now read between the lines of the text of the Constitution and say that some rights emanate from this vast penumbra, which is a scientific term for like the space between the light. And they created this doctrine to say that they could read between the lines of the text of the Constitution and pull out what emanates from this document and then has authority 
to interpret that and build a bunch of doctrines around that. Isn't that ridiculous? 1965 and that case, Griswold versus Connecticut, established one of the worst interpretation decisions of the Supreme Court in our lifetimes, and I think across the U.S. Supreme Court's history. Because from that decision, then if you can look between the lines of text and you can read what is invisible, then anything is in in the text of the Constitution. You can say, well, look, I'm reading something that you're not saying because the truth is it's not there. And so every single case of all of these social issues, of all of these accommodations of sin that we have seen in our culture that is further eroded truth and the true interpretation of the Constitution, which of course is built on the authority of the Word of God, has come from that case. And so we saw that that case was the first one that contemplated uh, contraceptives in terms of government regulation. And then you had, after 1965, just a few years later, you had the Roe versus Wade decision that further uh, took the consequences of human sexuality and the sexual revolution being defined and to take marriage apart and to say that sex is not just for the intimate relationship of a marriage between one man and one woman. It's no longer sacred. It can just be on demand. It's a it's a consumable. And then so then we have to separate that from the natural consequences. So we have to allow for contraceptions. Well, then when contraceptives fail, then we have to go a step further and say then a pregnancy is no longer a human being. Uh, we cannot we have to redefine that and we have to look into the, the vast penumbra and the lines between the text so that we can get the ability for the federal government to regulate and allow abortion and redefine it as some kind of woman's rights or health care rights. And then it went further in terms of uh, Lawrence versus Texas. And then it went further in terms of Obergefell versus Hodges, which was, of course, the decisions that contemplated um, the LGBT agenda. And then it's gone even further to redefine the term sex in the Bostock decision um, that was just back in 2019 that was talking about redefining this term sex in the context of the uh, 1960s Civil Rights Act that was specifically designed to protect women, that biological difference between man and woman in context, and to redefine that and say that back in the 1960s, that Congress meant that sex meant sexual orientation and gender identity. They're reading, they are proof texting. They're taking that one term out and they're saying, we are going to redefine that word however we want because we want to make this accommodation for sin. So the moment that we start proof texting the Bible and the authority of the word of God, that has led to an absolute disaster in terms of the laws of our nation. So I'm Jenna Ellis. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning. We will be right back with more on this question of why is Christianity in decline in our American society? We'll be right back. This is the time where we all better be on our knees in front of our windows, where we better have the boldness to stand on the truth of God's word, where our allegiance better be to him. Listen, he alone has an enduring kingdom. He 
alone, he alone makes promises and keeps them. God alone, nobody else. Airing the Addisons, weekday afternoons at 2 Central on American Family Radio. Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Christian parents are on the hook today because they have to identify the threats to the value system uh, that's being taught to their children in public schools. And their job is to protect their kids from these influences. Tune in for Family Talk with Dr. James Dobson. Weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. on American Family Radio. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our program. God's blessings to you all. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. When queried by the Pharisees concerning the greatest commandment, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He then said the second greatest commandment is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't simply say you shall love your neighbor. He said Christ followers must love our neighbors as ourselves. Christian duty requires us to employ discernment and active empathy. We worship our Lord when we put ourselves in one another's shoes as we do life together and resolve misunderstandings. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for the Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. In this new world, on this new day, we rejoice that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Preborn has been preparing for this moment for the past 16 years by positioning their clinics in the top six abortion states where 50% of abortions occur. Sadly, five of these six states will continue to abort babies at an even greater level. And since the abortion pill accounts for over 50% of abortions, babies are even more at risk. Preborn pregnancy clinics are completely dependent on you as they offer life-saving ultrasounds and the life-saving gospel to moms and babies in crisis. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. To learn how you can be a part of rescuing babies' lives and sharing the heart of Jesus, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are talking about why Christianity is in decline in our country. And there are, of course, uh, some presumptions and assumptions implicit in uh, that question of why and the question of uh, and the presumption that that's a bad thing, right? Some others who are looking at that study would say, wow, that's a good thing and would want that outcome and in fact are attempting purposefully to continue Christianity to be in the decline. So we need to make the assumption here that that is a bad thing, that that is against the founding of our country, that is against the self-evident truth that we perceive that God has presented us with, that we all have to confront, of course, life's most basic questions of who are we, why are we here, where are we going, what is our relationship with God, who is God? All of those questions are so incredibly important that our founders in their wisdom wanted to make sure that those questions could be openly 
publicly, intentionally debated and questioned and that answers could be given from pulpits in churches that would not be regulated or suppressed or infringed by the government. So when we're talking about this question, we have to look at a much richer background than uh, just, well, why is Christianity on decline and believe that it is exclusively a problem with church rather than a problem with broader culture that unfortunately influences the church. So uh, Pete Hegseth set this up well in uh, on Fox News when he was asking this question of why and referring to this Pew research study that showed that uh, U.S. adults identifying as Christian in the 1990s, was about 90 percent, 2007 declined to 78 percent, and in 2022 was 64 percent and still declining. So uh, so I want to go back to this Newsy clip because this really evidences exactly the problem of how the left and people who want to reinterpret and redefine our reality are asking these questions and they're starting with biblical truth because if we start just with politics and we talk about politics and headlines and what's going on in the world daily um, on this show and of course in, in our homes, in our churches, we should be talking about politics in our churches. But if we focus so much on every single particular issue that we fail to step back and say, how are these issues genuinely debatable? Are they debatable? then we're missing the greater context of where politics fits into the whole. We as Christians and as conservatives have to step back and say, the world to which God presents us shows fundamentally that God himself is the divine lawgiver. All truth is the person of God. And because he defines the measurable difference between right and wrong, good and evil, we as human beings are bound by limited authority that he delegates and our Constitution recognizes the truth of that reality and that there is self-evident truth and so limited our powers in government to be able to fulfill that mandate to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognized are given by God, our creator. And we have to start with that foundation because if we're only talking about issues of life, issues of marriage, issues of family and parental rights, issues of education, issues of uh, critical race theory being taught. All of those are important. But if we approach them as if those concepts and those definitions are debatable and we're debating whether or not an unborn child is a human being, when personhood attaches, uh, in the Dobbs decision, when viability is the most workable standard, then we are approaching this on a secular humanist playing field. And we are losing the argument before we even step into the debate because we are allowing the debate to have a basic assumption starting that argument by saying that this is a debatable issue. It'd be like going in saying, we agree that gender is debatable, that, that man and woman are not the only two genders. And so when we're even debating this question of uh, gender identity and debating that without first defining the biological reality, we are entering into a fiction and we are allowing the left to debate in an illogical reality. 
And if they won't even acknowledge self-evident truth, then the debate isn't even worth having. But we have gone so far, so far down the line from rejecting the authority of the word of God that now we are rejecting the authority of how God moves in society through civil law, through the church's authority, through the family and parental authority. And so now you get to interpreting scripture and then interpreting law according to the outcome that you prefer. And you get to questions like this. Play cut nine. For someone like me, I'm, I'm a bi man. As, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I immediately go to a place like Leviticus uh, 18.22. You know, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That, in this new version, Frank, stays exactly the same. And in that translation, it you know, bringing it over from Greek or Hebrew, it could be, and you can tell me which one it was, it could be that man was man or husband. It could be that that was in the context of incest. It could be that they were talking about sleeping with a married man and not just any man sleeping with a man. So those changes are the same. And I imagine uh, those uh, passages, I should say, are the same. And I imagine it's a lot more complicated for um, the, the, the changes that would be necessary to f make the LGBTQ community feel totally included would be a lot more complicated to make in the church. It would be a lot more complicated because we first have to say, what did God actually say? Not what interpretation best fits the outcome that we prefer. And one of my favorite uh, preachers of all time, Alistair Begg, responds, uh, not to this specific clip, but he responds to the problem of why Christianity is in decline and the, the problem with undermining and rejecting the authority of the word of the Bible. And he says, we're not at liberty to rewrite the Bible. Listen to how he explains his play cut one. Why would I want to come up here and address these things this morning? Only because of the Bible. We started, so we have to go. We're not free to tamper with the Bible. We're not at liberty to rewrite the Bible, to accommodate godless perspectives, whether it's a godless perspective on euthanasia, or on abortion, or on sexuality, whatever it might be, transgenderism. And in this arena right now, at this point in the, in the 21st century here in America, within the framework of church, whatever you want to call church, big church, let everybody go in for the moment and think about this. The danger is an increasing danger that those who should know better are losing their convictions not about sexual matters, but about the authority of the Bible. That is the issue. In all of these things, it is all from the Garden of Eden. The evil one came and said, did God really say? Did he really say that? They believed the lie and the rest followed. The same bullet is in his gun. Coming to the pastor and say, but wait a minute, pastor. Does that what it really means? Is that what he really said? And those who are in positions of our responsibility need to face that. If we lose conviction about the authority of the Bible, if we then become uncertain about it, then we lose our voice. If we then in turn become indifferent to the issue, then we're in real trouble. Did God really say? That is the question of interpretation and rightly exegeting scripture. And I hope that the church that you attend, that your pastor is not only rightly dividing scripture, and truth from error, but is also willing to engage then the application of scripture to every aspect 
of the human experience and to every aspect of life. When he talks about, you know, why am I coming up here in the pulpit and addressing these things on uh, the sins that our culture faces and, and the, the terrible, terrible sin um, that America is allowing right now, of course, is the slaughter of millions of unborn children. And this is why, uh, by the way, um, preborn, which is a life-saving work that um, you just heard about in the break, that clinics are standing strong, offering love, support, and compassion to hurting women and helping them make the right choice. AFR has partnered with preborns uh, clinics, and if you would like to help with uh, preborn, then you can go to the AFR website, uh, AFR.net, and you can help with uh, preborn and getting involved and engaging people who are attempting to not just make abortion illegal, but make it unthinkable. And so as we contemplate all of these different social issues, it has to come back first to the question of, did God really say? Because if we are abandoning objective truth, and we are allowing the reinterpretation and these changes, these 20,000 plus revisions of just one, uh, one translation of scripture, then we've lost it. We have completely lost it. And then no wonder when we are making these arguments in a political context and we are saying, no, the definition of marriage matters. Absolutely, life begins at conception. And absolutely, every human being has dignity and value inherently and intrinsically because every human being is made in the image of God. All of these things and all of these arguments that we make go back to objective truth and answer that question, did God really say? And we have to have an argument that is dependent not just on our particular faith, my truth versus your truth. That's how the left wants to spin this and say, my truth versus your truth. If I don't share your faith, I don't believe in your God. Stop foisting your values and your faith on me. We have to go back and say, it's not my truth. It is objective reality. If you think that there are more than two genders, if you think a man can become a woman, if you think that the Supreme Court has the ability to literally read between the lines of the text of the Constitution, you are not living in reality. You are illogical. You are crazy. And we have to go back and say, this isn't just a faith-based argument because I happen to believe that the Bible is the authority and the word of God. It's that everything in the Bible is self-evident truth. The Bible has never in any context been disproven. There is nothing that the Bible says that is not completely in line with the self-evident truth of reality. And as we are making these arguments, and we should be making these arguments as Christians in a political context, in a cultural context, in our schools, in our jobs, in the in healthcare decision making, in rules and laws that touch and pertain to every aspect of our lives, law pertains and controls and regulates every profession that we're all engaged in. And so if we want those laws to ultimately reflect reality, we have to first answer the question, what does God say? What does the truth of reality show? And then we can take those same principles of exegesis and interpretation and then interpret the U.S. Constitution of what does the Constitution genuinely say? No one really asks that question anymore. No one asks that question 
uh, when I was going to law school. In constitutional law class, the question was, what does the Supreme Court say? What did the Supreme Court opine? That is a perversion of the U.S. Constitution. And we are now, as I, as I said earlier, living under two separate constitutions because we are now living under the legacy and history of all of the opinions of the Supreme Court. Those opinions, of course, can be wrong. They can be wrong in their inception, like Roe versus Wade and its progeny, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And so Dobbs overturned it. And then a future Supreme Court could overturn Dobbs, right? And so if we're just going along with whoever happens to be in control of the majority, and that's where we derive our morality, then we're lost. Then we are dependent as a nation upon the measurable difference between what is right and wrong and good and evil, evil, what is prescribed versus what is prohibited. In the context of criminal law, civil law, or civil society, we are then dependent on the whim of whatever the people in authority want to say. And this is why politics has become such a partisan battleground. Because we have replaced, and one of those God substitutes, we have replaced the authority and the question of, did God really say, with, did the Supreme Court really say? And we are deriving what is quote unquote, objectively true based on how the Supreme Court has interpreted and proof texted and reinvented the U.S. Constitution to derive our cultural morality. And so is it any wonder that fewer and fewer and fewer people are self-identifying as Christians and that fewer and fewer pastors are willing to stand up and stand firm and say, we are teaching the truth of these issues? No, because we have to go back as conservative Christians and we have to say, did God say, answer that question truthfully, and then the rest is built from there. So I would encourage you today, stand firm on truth, be first and foremost in the word of God, make sure you are rightly dividing scripture, and then go back to the text of the U.S. Constitution as well, and make sure that you are interpreting those based on the author's intent, not just what we sub- subjectively want to accommodate. So I'm Jenna Ellis. You've been listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning, and I will be with you each and every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern. Have a wonderful day. Go forward in the truth of the Word of God. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.